can always do from anywhere is make you more like his son. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue our study. Hebrews chapter 12 is Paul's theological book of Romans to the Jews. Or you could say that Romans is his theological book to the Gentiles. The same message we gain from both of them, but he's explaining to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the creator, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, We come out of the chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So in the chapter of faith, which is being sure of the things that you cannot see, being certain of what God is and what he has done, is demonstrated by doing, by repenting to Christ, making him your Lord, you're his forever, and then by doing. So he comes out of chapter 11 into chapter 12 and he talks about discipline extensively. He tells us things in there that, for example, that if you haven't been disciplined by the Lord, then you're not his. Because discipline is a necessary aspect of love. The love cannot be separated from discipline. And he's coming out of that. We'll look back a little bit at verse 11 of chapter 12 that we looked at last week. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's one of my favorite words by the Apostle Paul is trained. We were familiar with the word sanctification and his making us more like Christ, but sanctification is such a misused word in Christendom. Um, that it is often used as the the Holy Spirit is just poured on people at different times and enables them to do different things. And and a word that Paul uses to help us understand is trained. No one would go up to the starting line of the 100-meter dash in the Olympics having never trained and said, Lord, pour down your power and let me win this race. Rather, Paul would say, Train yourself. In chapter 5 and verse 14, he talks about those who are fully trained. Jesus says in Luke 6, 40, a student is not above his teacher, but when he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. You can't be an Olympic athlete wanting to be fast today and running there tomorrow. You have to work your muscles, and Paul talks about working your spiritual muscles to become mature. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. There's a a two-way working of God there that, that if you train yourself, the primary command of the Bible is love your neighbor as yourself. The primary command of God since the resurrection is love one another, meaning believer to believer, that lost people will be led to Christ by seeing believers truly lay down their lives for each other. John, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus 
Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. That demonstrated in the world entices people to Jesus Christ. And when we do that through obedience and we're trained by it and we become familiar with it and it becomes a way of life, Paul says that you will strengthen your your spiritual muscles, your arms and your legs, and, and the weak ones around you will be strengthened by you, and you will be strengthened by strengthening them. It's a chicken and the egg thing. When a person, in a, when people in a group obey Christ, it strengthens those who don't have enough faith to choose on their own. And that aspect strengthens the ones who do. Let's pray as we get into our passage. Heavenly Father, help us to know you, who it is that we approach right now in prayer. Paul wants us to know, through the passage we will study today, how awesome and how incredible the place is and the person is that I am speaking to right now and how awesome and how amazing his son is through whom I'm speaking to you right now. Lord, let us leave this place knowing you better and let us leave this place knowing your son better. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, make level paths for your feet and Selah read how that happens. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. When we submit to the Lord, we, we maybe have questions. I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. I don't know how I'm going to fit into the church. I don't know how to contribute. But Lord, I trust you. He says, good, that's all I needed to know. I'll take care of the rest. Follow my son, use his example, and I'll take care of the rest. So um, in your notes there, let's go to Titus, just a little bit back to the left in your Bibles. This is what we've been studying on Wednesday nights about we're looking at this obedience if we love him. We're looking at this being strengthened and obeying. We're, we're learning about what grace actually is Grace has been watered down in our day too. Um, just, just pray a prayer and God will give you all the grace you need to do and you can get on with your life. But it's actually grace that teaches us how to obey Christ. Among many other things, verse 11 of Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So salvation is being offered. So we were, Terry and I were reading about this church that we had visited yesterday and just their beliefs and, and their belief is that, that the, the plan of God is to save people from their sins. Well, first of all, let me say that it, it is incredibly awesome that that's in his plan. But that's not his purpose. His purpose is that through faith, we obey his son and become like his son. And we have made it that faith is the goal when the Bible says that faith without deeds is dead and it's incomplete. So the grace that offers salvation to all people 
Another good theological verse on election. Who is he offering it to? Everyone. Verse 12. It teaches us. What teaches us? The grace of God that has appeared that offers salvation to all people teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. While we wait, here's the rapture. Paul takes us to focus on the rapture, but he's always talking about holy living. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't, with all the religions that don't believe his God, it's hard to get away from a verse like that. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Jason and I were learning in Sunday school this morning. Who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's the purpose of God, that grace could come to us. It saves us. Praise God. It comes to us to make us bow down to his son, to teach us to say no to ungodliness, to teach us to say yes to self-controlled, disciplined, and holy lives, so that he creates for himself a church that is filled with people who are eager to do what is good. That's pretty hard for the world to slander. If you truly love people, if you're truly eager to do what is good, the world will be drawn to Christ through us in Titus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, so that having been justified by grace, born again, saved forever, he paid my debt, I made him Lord, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, trust in the Lord with all your heart, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's the purpose of God as we go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 16. I'll start reading through 14. We'll read right into 16. Make every effort to, every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. So that comes up often in the scriptures. What is our focus? Our focus is to be holy. So Peter goes back to Moses and he says that since the one, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, since the one that you're following is holy, you be holy. And guess what? They will figure out that you follow him. And then he takes us back to Moses who had God speak to him, be holy because I am holy. If we're unholy, then no one will know that we're following the Holy One. Verse 14 again, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. And then he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If we are not eager to do what is good, if we are not willing to obey Christ to prove that we love him, then we will not become holy. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
Verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So the grace of God, what do you mean fall short, Paul? Well, part of falling short is saying, well, grace just means that Jesus wants to give me a gift and let me do whatever I want, come as you are, leave as you are, stay the same as you are. Paul says, make sure you don't fall short of the grace that teaches you to say no to ungodliness, yes to Christ. The answer to in response to Christ that he only and always accepts is, yes, Lord. So Paul says, make sure that you don't fall short of that. Grace has a purpose to make people like Christ. And as I said, yes, he was put on the cross. Yes, he was um, punished for our sins. But Jesus is the most popular person that ever lived. He still is today, but he was when he walked the earth. If you had the option to see um, one of the Caesars or uh, a king or an entourage or Christ, everyone went to see Christ because he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he does and tells us to do. So long before he makes it to Jerusalem, thousands of people from Gentile areas in Syria and from northern Galilee are crowding around this person to see who he is and why it is so special to him. Um, reading on Actually, let's go in our Bibles. Let's read verse 16 and 17. See to it that no, no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. There's a verse in the Bible that makes clear that we will not see Esau in heaven. Um, King Herod that tried to kill Jesus is actually a descendant of Esau many years later. Who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And that sounds so foolish. But why, in 2022, if you ask an atheist or an agnostic or an evolutionist, ask them this question. If you, through your evidence, found out that Jesus raised from the dead, would you follow him? You know what they say? They say, no. Wait a minute. If you know he raised from the dead and you know what he says is true and you know there's a heaven and you know there's a hell, why wouldn't you listen to him? Because he's going to disrupt what I have now. And that's exactly like Esau. Esau was more worried about hunger than a birthright. So are most people in 2022. They're more worried about the things that they want than a birthright. Verse 17, afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what had been done. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Esau is a perfect example. Was he sorry? Absolutely. Did he wish he hadn't made that mistake? Absolutely. Was he willing to repent? Absolutely not. 
and nothing could be changed in his life because Jacob's God and Isaac's God and Rebekah's God was not going to be Esau's God. So Paul is saying in verse 14 and 15, make sure, make absolutely sure that you're striving to be holy, that you have not fallen short of the grace of God. He is essentially saying, make sure that you have repented. Turn to Romans chapter 6 as Paul is explaining these things to Gentiles. And obviously Jews would benefit from Romans and we as Gentiles benefit from Hebrews. So about 60 AD, Paul is a prisoner. He has been taken from Jerusalem. He is headed towards Rome and he is now before his third government official who happens to be King Agrippa. And for the third time in his life in the Bible, Paul gives his testimony about being a persecutor of the church, about persecuting Christ, and about meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And Jesus, in Luke, which Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and Acts flows right out of Luke, Luke records the great commission of Jesus saying, in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and verse 47, he says, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and raise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. So Paul tells us in Acts chapter 26 that Jesus gave him that message, and he's telling Paul to lead people from Satan to God, from darkness to light through repentance. So Paul says in Acts 26, verses 19 and 20, he says, So, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision that came from heaven, beginning at Damascus, and then at Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I told them that they should repent, turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance through their good deeds. Paul is saying in that mouthful of a verse that from day one, I told every person this three-part, one salvation, repent, die to your sins, turn to Christ, and then demonstrate your repentance through your deeds. That was Paul's offer from heaven to every person he met. Today, the offer is, if you pray this prayer, everything is accomplished. So what Paul is saying is that if you repent and turn to Christ, everything is finished. You are justified. In his eyes, you've been, you've been called, you've been justified, you've been chosen, you've been glorified. It's finished. But with Paul, if Paul were preaching today, he would say, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Romans 10, 9. Make him your Lord. I was talking with Larry this morning and he has been so effective at sharing with his mother in hospice these truths. And I said, what she says isn't going to save her, but the things that she's saying to you has shown that a page has turned in her life. 
And I said, for your peace, her saying to this isn't going to save her. But ask her as her son, Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. Paul is saying, if you repent and turn from your sins to Christ, he's Lord. And if he's Lord, he is Savior. But if you want a Savior without repentance and without Christ being his Lord, then Paul would say you have fallen short of the grace that has been offered to you. And that message has been lost today. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul has given us this doctrine of dying to sin. Um, we could start all the way back in verse 5, and he's been talking about dying to sin the way Christ died to sin. So here's a guaranteed verse. If you have died to sin, this is true for you, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's a promise from God to you, that if you repent and die to your sins and turn to Christ, you will be resurrected. Promise. Unchangeable. Forever. Reading on. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's repentance. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. If you're the same person after you meet Christ that you are before you met Christ, then you haven't died and been crucified with what Paul is talking about here. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Another promise. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. And I want to tell you as I'm reading verses 9 and 10, listen closely to these verses and I'll explain why. Listen closely to verses 9 and 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. Now the reason I wanted you to look at those two verses closely, look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument to wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Look at that last verse. Church culture in America seems to say grace says it doesn't matter. That's direct from a popular Christian song. It seems to say that I'm free 
to do whatever I want to do. Paul says, grace says the opposite. Grace says, I died to sin. I never have to obey its desires. I live for God. His spirit lives in me. The reason I can stop sinning is because I'm no longer under the law, but I'm under grace. You say, well, I'm still capable of sin. So am I. But sin is not my master. And, he, and it can't be yours. It has to be Christ's. You can sin as a Christian. I wish I didn't prove that as often as I do. But Christ is always my Lord. And that has to be the case. Because I'm no longer under the law, but I'm under grace. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18, <clears throat> Paul's going to make a comparison in these verses between Jesus and, on Mount Sinai. I want us to consider in our minds how awesome that was, and he wants us to consider how much more awesome it is when we approach God now. Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness gloom and storm to a trumpet blast. We're going to be called to Christ in the rapture through a trumpet blast and this trumpet at that moment was getting louder and louder and louder. Um, a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was being commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death, God told them. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19. We need to at least look at what Paul is comparing what he's about to teach us to. So in Exodus 19, the Shekinah glory of Christ comes down to Mount Sinai, the, this, this settling place after the Exodus. And when, when you listen to these words, it sounds like a fictional story. It sounds like, okay, yeah, that was Moses and the Israelites. But just try to visualize in your mind two to three million people around one mountain because they're all called out there. And then suddenly fire comes down from, the uh, from heaven and lights this mountain on fire so that above the mountain it looks like smoke just spewing out of a furnace because the fire has lit the mountain on fire. And the fire that hits this mountain has hit it so severely that the mountain is shaking. And God is speaking out of this Shekinah glory. And the Jews are terrified. And Paul tells us, so was Moses. And he's trying to give us an understanding because he's about to invite 
Moses up to Mount Sinai to bring Aaron with him, and Joshua will be following behind, and he is going to give him what we know as the Ten Commandments and the laws. And we see the people hearing commands from Moses, hearing God from out of this storm. And we begin reading in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in camp trembled. I've been scared before. I don't know that I've ever actually trembled in fear. Verse 17, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And this is the Son of God. The story makes that clear. This is Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it. It's not just fire and smoke. It's a theophany of Christ. In other words, in this case, this yet-to-be-born-as-a-baby, Son of God, is fire and smoke. And he is resting on this mountain the way he would rest on the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. And they are trembling with fear, rightfully so. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through and see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain, and set, up, set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down, bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, turn to chapter 20 and verse 18. He has just given through verse 17 the Ten Commandments. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. Turn back to Hebrews. People are, and I'm a people, we are so fickle, we are so in the moment, we are so, what have you done for me lately, God? Just a few days after this, they build an idol to another God. That's the people that, that Moses was leading. 
and Moses comes down from the mountain in anger because in just a few days they have turned their backs on this God. So you have in your notes there Deuteronomy 9 verse 19, Moses, which refers to what Paul is telling us, was fearful himself. He says, I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you, but again the Lord listened to me. Terry and I were talking about this yesterday. I heard a sermon recently that just, the sermon angered me. Um, I was told to listen to it, so I did listen to it, and, and he's telling in this sermon that God had a plan here, and Moses had a plan here. Moses suggested that his plan was better, and God said, you're right. See, omniscience is too big for us. There are multiple times God is going to probably strike Aaron and Marion dead. We know from Deuteronomy he was at least with the golden calf, he was going to strike Aaron dead. There are multiple times where God says, Moses, step back. I'm going to wipe these people out, and it's going to go through you instead of Abraham. And each time, Moses would fall down and he would say to the Lord, Lord, because of your great name, don't have people saying that, that he couldn't rescue them, so he brought them out here and he killed them. Lord, because of your great name, do what you promised to Abraham. Lord, let your promises that you've already made be true for your sake. And God would listen. Omniscience is, before Adam and Eve are created, there's going to be an Abraham, and he already knows him. And there's going to be a time where these rebellious people come out of Egypt into the wilderness, and there's going to be a man that I choose who will be so humble that when I offer him glory, he will push it back to me. And that's Moses. That's omniscience. That's God knowing Moses, you know, we read a verse like Romans 8, 26, that the Spirit help us, helps us in our weakness when we don't know what we ought to pray. People take that verse to mean, okay, Lord, there's this thing that I'm really feeling strongly about, so help me say it correctly. It's more like what happens to Moses is that God's will is the promise will go through Abraham. There will be a remnant. There's a remnant of Jews in 2022 that when I am worthy of or destroying them, Moses will say, Lord, please don't, and I will. So the way the Holy Spirit works is God has a perfect plan, and we're somewhere out here, and the Holy Spirit brings us into a place where we ask what God already wants, and he says, done. So Jesus says, like in the Gospel of John, um, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the Holy Spirit bringing us to a place to ask what God already wants to happen. He needs an invitation. We invite. He does. So 1 John 5.14 says that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Anything according to his will. God works for those who, the good of those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. 
And if he brings us in line with his will, we can act it and he will do it. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, David wrote. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 22. That's not the mountain that we come to. And he's talking about as even we prayed this morning, when you prayed when you woke up this morning, this is what you have come to. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Maybe we should have read those before we sang, that when we, good morning, Lord, Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this and praise you for this, and, and, and I have some things I'm concerned about, I'm giving that. Paul is saying, please realize what you're approaching. There is an awesome Heavenly Father who can't meet us until we are made perfect in Christ and he has destroyed every enemy, including death. Sitting on his glorious throne, our Father who art in heaven. And sitting at his right hand is the person for whom, through whom, and to whom everything exists. And redemption is possible. And salvation is a reality. Heir of a kingdom. Chapter 2, verse 11 in Hebrews. We're his brothers and sisters when we come to him. So these two glorious, indescribable beings are listening to us right now. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands, John at one point says 10,000 times 10,000, I think that's 100 million, angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They do that 24-7. And then my daughter, for example, my dad, for example, and these Saints, the, the spirits of saints that have trusted in Christ have been made perfect through the blood of the Lamb are surrounding him, singing with them, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Blessed is the Lamb. Blessed is the name of Jesus. For through him he has redeemed the world. And he doesn't want us to say, good morning, Lord. Um, I pray that you'll give me a good day. Um, I pray for this meal. I, Paul is saying, understand this access. Understand, Heavenly Father, what that really means. Understand, in Jesus' name, what that really means when we talk to our Heavenly Father. So turn 
in your Bibles, you see a few, few verses in your notes, first of all. In Revelation 1.20, which is the last verse of chapter 1 and then the first verse of chapter 2, Jesus is explaining church to these seven churches. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. In other words, they're figurative. Here's their literal reality. The seven stars are angels. Angel, the Greek word for angel means messenger. The seven messengers. The seven stars are angels of the seven churches, the preachers and the teachers. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is the, of an omnipresent God, this is his chosen location in relationship to man on earth. He is the supreme one over the church so that he might have supremacy in everything. And his description of the church is where truth is being taught, where a body is being gathered, the, the, the teachers that will teach my word, I hold them in my right hand. And the lampstands are literally the churches. So believe it in your heart that the spirit of Jesus Christ is walking among us right now. Right now. And he's holding the teaching if the teaching is truth, in his right hand and walking among us. Another thing to understand in your notes, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God, referring to the Father as God, Jesus is clearly God, but he's explaining the order and our approach to this throne Paul is talking about. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. That's verse 5. Verse 6 is the qualifications of a mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So when people say, well, I, I pray in this person's name or this saint's name or I pray in his mother's name or I do these things, they don't understand the significance of that. John is... Jason referred to this morning, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to my Father except through me, Jesus says. John 16, 24, the night he's going to be betrayed, he says, until this time, you haven't prayed in my name. From now on, that's a requirement. That's what is required when we pray. Look at a couple verses in Hebrews, chapter 8 and verse 6. We looked at these same verses when we were in chapter 8, and it's worthwhile to look at them as often as possible. And he's doing the same thing in chapter 8. He's comparing the law of Moses, which is a part of God's plan, and now that Christ has risen, and the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verse 6 but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the, old, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Turn to chapter 9 and verse 15. 
another verse on Jesus the mediator. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And then he gives the qualifications again, just like 1 Timothy. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So the first covenant did what it was supposed to do. It said, you're guilty. You need a savior. The second covenant said, the savior is here. The promises are sealed. The Holy Spirit will seal you in Christ by the direction of God the Father, and once you're in Christ, you cannot be removed. And because he lived a righteous life, if you look at all of the, create, the, the requirements that the Son of God fulfilled in order to get to the cross as the right sacrifice, he had to be the creator. The first hurdle that you have to cross with your unsaved friend is that out of nothing, the Son of God spoke everything. And you can use, as I said, reason and, and logic and, and whatever direction they want to go. Reading C.S. Lewis last night in uh, Mere Christianity talking about reason, you have to end up with a moral objective. If you say that it's subjective, that one country can have their own morality and another can have the other, yes, but pretty much every country agrees that the Nazis were wrong. You, to even say that the morality of the United States is better than the morality of Babylon is to compare them both to something. Or you can't say that. Just making the point that reason leads to Christ the same way that truth leads to Christ, because reason leads you to truth. So Paul is explaining these things, and that's why it says in Acts chapter 17, Paul's most famous witness opportunity, known as Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, it says in chapter 17 and verse 2, beginning that chapter, as he, he approaches the Bereans and the Thessalonians, that he reasoned with them. So science says in 2022, Stephen Hawking himself said before he died that time, space, and matter had to have begun at the exact same time. So ask a person who has this belief that it's just a bunch of random things that form cells and objects and ask yourself, heart, lungs, pancreas, liver, which one do I need to live? meaning they had to all be there immediately. So you can use reason, and the Bible is full of that, and your goal is to bring them to the only, the only recording of how things began is the Bible. The only promise of eternal life is one person that has ever made it, and it's Jesus Christ. And that person qualified for the cross by creating everything, giving Adam and Eve rule and authority over the earth. They decided to hand it to Satan. He went to the cross, bought it back. You decided to sin and follow Adam. He bought you back at the cross. He is the ransom for any, every, everyone. He's at the right hand. He's the mediator. 
in verse 25 of Hebrews 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused, meaning the Israelites, him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from heaven? This is the gospel that Paul is giving us here. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. Sun, moon, stars, earth, and even heaven itself. That is, created things. In the beginning, Elohim, Aleph Tav, it says in the Hebrew, it literally says, in the beginning, the Son of God made the heavens and the earth. And that same Son of God, Revelation 19, is going to come with that same sword out of his mouth, and he's going to judge. Verse 27, the words once more indicate that the, re the removing of what can be shaken, what is, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So he's explaining to us that everything that you can see, touch, feel, smell, taste is going to be removed in a, in a cleansing, in a burning, in a fire. Um, turn to First, Second Peter chapter 3. The only one who teaches on the rapture is Paul, but the others teach us what was taught all throughout the Old Testament, what Paul is referring to there, and that is the, the second coming of Christ to earth. And that is when, if we look at the progression of things, the next thing on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. Then there will be a seven-year period where the Antichrist, the instead of Christ, the imposter of Christ, will seem to rule the earth for seven years. At the end of that, the true Christ will come. He will judge the world. He will refurbish the world, and he will set up a kingdom for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, the last human will have made the last choice, yes or no, to God. And the white throne judgment will then be suspended between heaven and earth. Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. And while that judgment is going on, where you and I will be part of the judging group with Christ as the head, every demon and every lost person will be judged personally one at a time. While that is happening, heaven is being made ready for earth and earth is being burned with fire to prepare for it. So Peter is referring to this in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So that, that statement is made multiple times in the Gospels by Paul and by Peter, and 100% of it time, it means judgment and not the rapture. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. 
the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Everything that has happened, everything that is on the earth, all of the, the sickness, the disease, the corruption and everything, it will be the same earth forever, but it will be completely burnt clean. The stars and everything will be shaken. The, the heavens will be shaken and refurbished. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How do you speed its coming? You don't change the date, but you affect it. What does that mean? It means God knows how faithful you're going to be before there's a heaven, before there's an earth. And by how faithful we are, puts the date that he has secure in place. So our faithfulness affects the coming of God, even though God knows the day that he's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt with heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. Wherever in the New Testament especially you find prophecy, you will always find a call to holy living as we go back to, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Remember, he is calling us in this chapter earlier to make sure that we've repented. He is doing the same thing here in chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? How do you do that? You hear his offer and you go on without making a decision. We are told here that that is trampling the Son of God underfoot who has treated as unholy as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant and sanct that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Turn back to Hebrews and we'll close. I was going to read 1 John 2, 3 through 6, which goes right along with this, but we will close with these last two verses. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, remember he's going to shake everything that can be shaken, what can't be shaken, the kingdom of Christ, the true church of Christ, a born-again person cannot be shaken. 
Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Heavenly Father, however much reverence and awe I am able to project in approaching your throne right now, it's not enough. But I do think of you in those terms. And Father, I think of the tenderness of your heart that possessing the power and the right to do anything, you orchestrate a plan to save as many of us to become like Christ as possible. Thank you, Father. Thank you in your Son, our mediator, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.